welcome to Changing Academic Life. I'm Geraldine Fitzpatrick, and this is a podcast series where academics and others share their stories, provide ideas, and provoke discussions about what we can do individually and collectively to change academic life for the better. Today's conversation is with Michael Muller. He's a researcher at IBM Research in Cambridge, Massachusetts. We cover a lot in this conversation. Michael reflects on his long PhD process, getting in his PhD four hours before a deadline uh, in cognitive science. And this was in large part because of his chronic illnesses that he was dealing with and still deals with. He talks about the decision then after his PhD to move to industry and his experiences working in various industry positions since then including interpreting participatory design methods for North American industry context, finding out the hard way that he wasn't suited to management, and loving the work that he's doing now. A theme across many of the stories is the tension arising from navigating organisational demands and his own deeply held personal values. And throughout, you can also hear his very deep care for people and working for people and with people and supporting the people he works with. Enjoy. Michael, thank you for your time. And this is at the, actually at the end of a long day and a, and a challenging talk, so I appreciate your time here. It's an honour that you've asked me to do this, so yeah. thank you for the honour. And, um, and thank you for your friendship. <laughs> it's a pleasure. And uh, just for context, can you just let us know a little bit about where you're coming from, you know, what, what sort of disciplinary background. Oh, goodness. Um, just, just in a very brief... I am an autodidact in many current skill sets, but mm-hmm. my original training was in cognitive psychology back in, I often say, the 18th century, but in fact, um, <laughs> my degree comes from 1983. It took nine years to complete. Mm-hmm. Do as I say, not as I do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I took a long. I took the scenic route for a PhD as yes, well. Yes, mm-hmm. I, I, I handed in my thesis four hours before the deadline at which they would no longer <gasps> grant my degree. But so at this least was it was hours and not minutes. Yes, yes, indeed, indeed. <laughs> Big but, achievement. Right, one, one bad ink cartridge on the printer, <laughs> and I would have been doomed. Anyway. Um, so it was cognitive psychology back before that meant mathematical modeling. That mm-hmm. was in the curriculum. It was available. It's not what we were doing. Mm-hmm. Um, my thesis was about the perception of textured figures against textured grounds. And then I tried to find something interesting to do after that. So you're working in industry now. I am working in a research organization Mm -hmm. in industry, which Mm -hmm. makes it a peculiar hybrid thing. It means we are scored to some extent like academics are scored, except we don't get... In terms of publications. Yes, yes. They would like to see the publications, please. And because it's it's IBM, they have um, clear goals. They manage by objective. And so they know where they would like those publications to appear. And, and in fact, there's a set of funding for conference travel and stuff that either happens relatively straightforwardly from that or... If you've chosen the right venues. Yes, exactly right. Yeah, and if yeah. you haven't, then it's you might be paying your own way to the conference, wow. which would make you like an academic, yeah, yeah, actually. Yeah. I mean, whereas we have this sort of cushy life as industry people in some ways. But can you influence what those valued venues are? There are groups that have discussions about this mm-hmm. and, um, and that occasionally change the list. We are currently, um, because of our interest in AI, we're, we're currently trying to get the human-robot interaction conference added to the list, it seems, even though we will probably not be thinking about humanoid robots, mm. but we will be thinking about smart homes, which yeah. are robots with a different kind of face, yeah. as far as I can tell. Um, and so, and it, it's a complicated, it, it's a process. Yeah. In fact, we often say we are IBM, we have a process for you, but it's not true. We have six processes for you. <laughs> and um, and so this this process is is a little bit murky, but it's been done. Wendy Kellogg was, was, was superb at this kind of thing. Okay. 
Um, now she's retired, so we all have to learn her skills after she's no longer available to teach us. Or to act, yeah. yeah. And, uh, it's a similar issue in some universities as well, I hear, where they're trying to sort of lobby and argue for different venues. Yeah, and, and it's also supposed to be advisory, but it's mm. often applied as if it were a rule. Yeah. So. yeah. Especially when there are limited budgets. It's always That's easy exactly to take the, the yeah. advisory as a rule. It's, you know, um, I, uh, just because of the, um, the hurricane emergency in, in the U.S. state of Texas, I'm remembering that people described explicitly during Katrina, part of the problem with Katrina was that it came at the end of the month and people didn't have money to get gasoline to drive out of town. Mm. I think that may also have happened mm. in Texas because it was pretty close to the end of the month. So at the end of the budget cycle, then... Um, similarly, yeah. it, your chances of getting um, approved for a non-standard conference go down. Mm. And, and indeed, uh, there have been lean years, and all organizations, including academic ones, have lean years, when um, you, it was not going to work out very well mm. if you had a sudden idea toward the end of mm. the budget cycle about a good conference to go to. The budget might have been spent by then. So part of your planning about your publication strategies includes that sort of awareness then? Yes, although most years are not that lean. And yeah. so um, in, in, in IBM, am I going to say this? Apparently I am. In IBM, they actually treat re researchers better than peer-level employees who are not research. That's, mm -hmm. of course, not good for the other employees, mm -hmm. and it's ultimately not good for us as researchers mm -hmm. either to be to have special privileges. That's yeah. never healthy, even yeah. if it seems to be fun. Yeah. Um, and so, so they cushion us against some of the lean year stuff. That doesn't mean that in, during a really bad time, we, don't, we aren't forced to have goodbye yeah. parties too. It's less frequent. Yeah. Um, they have a sense that it's going to take a while for us to figure out what to yeah. do and to deliver value on a yeah. new idea, but it would be better if it were shorter. Thank you. Yeah. So, so um, can we go back to your nine-year PhD? Yes. What, what were the factors that contributed to the extra scenic group PhD? Um, indolence, but also, <laughs> um, I guess we're going to get personal very quickly. Um, I have two chronic diseases, which okay. I uh, first discovered that I had when I was about 21. Um, they require medication, medication requires money. And so I was working for, working part-time as a statistical consultant, was the nice way to put mm -hmm. it, a numbers droid, um, for AT&T general departments in human resource research. The irony of that will come back later in our conversation, I suspect. Um, and so, so that took time, you mm -hmm. know, and then there was the indolence that I right. mentioned. Right. And, and I also, the, I, my degree is from Rutgers, the State University of New Jersey, United States. And they had a psychology department divided into five parts, and I moved from one part to another. And, of course, that co yeah. costs yes. a year or more yeah. in time. And I also wasn't very good at it after yeah. the move. Yeah. And so... Um, so, so getting, getting your PhD was a big achievement then in overcoming or going, dealing with all of those issues. I remind myself of that occasionally. It's nice of you to say mm. it. Mm. <laughs> yes, and, and it was, um, as is true for so many of us in the field, it was, I, I think it may have been the first PhD on, on either side of my family. I'm not sure. I think it was. Um, so, yeah, mm. yeah, yeah. Brilliant. So it was... And did you go to work... In, in an industry research organization straight away? Uh, now I need to be careful about whom I make mention of. Um, my impression, and let's underscore impression, because mm. um, <clears throat> I have no facts to support this, my impression was that most of the academic psychologists I knew were not very happy. Right. And, and what, what were you and so thinking? I, I was was thinking, their reason for not being happy? Um... They wished their careers would go better. That was part of it. Yeah. Um, there was one person whose name I think I will mention, Mark Altam, who mm. has been a member of the CHI community in North America for, um, up until about the year 2000 or 2002. 
Mark was a young, extraordinarily gifted professor at, um, at one of the campuses of Rutgers, in the, at, yes, the headquarters campus of the university, but they had five sub-campuses within that. And, um, and he was at, at the bottom one, at the, the one that, that people mostly look down on. And he was dedicated to teaching. He got a teaching award. That was part of the kiss of death. Um, and, and I thought, oh, well, here's someone I, I, I really admire. Yeah. And I admired his dedication. I admired his, his, his candor. At one point I said, Mark, what if you don't get ten, tenure? And he said, well, I used to paint houses. I guess I can paint, paint houses. And, um, and he didn't say it sarcastically. He mm -hmm. just said, that would be my alternative. And, and the writing was on the wall. And apparently people said to Mark, look, you're not going to get tenure. You're not doing the things you're supposed to do to get tenure. And there's this really great job that has your name on it at Bell Labs. You should not wait to not get tenure. You should go. And he thought long and hard about it and went. And my role model was gone. And, hmm, hmm. So I had been consulting at AT&T General Departments. And, yeah, they had their own troubles, especially it was around the years in which AT&T um, either asked to be split or was forced to split, depending mm -hmm. upon whose history of that you read. Um, so people were very worried about the future. But at the same time, there was much less of a division, I think of it almost as a shearing motion. Um, for the recorder, I just moved my hands as if I were <laughs> twisting something apart. Um, between the surface and the deep values. And I, I didn't fancy being, at the time, I didn't fancy being in an academic environment in which each time I wanted to do something, something kind or considerate or perhaps even useful for students, I would be jeopardizing myself. And that was the way I interpreted my advisor told me, and I will not mention his name because that wouldn't be fair to him, um, told me at one point, Michael, you will have to learn to be a mediocre instructor like the rest of us because I was being mm, too, de too dedicated yeah. to students and yeah. then found me a research assistantship so that I wouldn't hurt myself as much in his eye and, and, and the eyes of the faculty. That's a statement that you have to make that choice. Yes, indeed. Well... At that school, at least mm. you did. Well, the and perception I, that you had to make that and, choice. And, and I took that as given. Um, mm. I mean, he, he was my advisor. He, yeah. he knew a whole lot more and about academia also, than I did. You also had a role. You, you saw the and implications saw of that in action with Mark. the other. Yeah. Yes. Um, so, so, so I went into industry in part for that reason and in part because I had those chronic diseases mm. and I thought I was... I mean, this is very ironic to say now in 2017 with uh, employment based in the United States, but I thought at the time, well, indus industry jobs are relatively stable. I am less likely in industry to be trying to figure out where my benefits went while I was working four to six adjunct professorships. Mm -hmm. if, if something happened to me like I didn't get tenure, which yeah. I know you and Scott have discussed as, yes. as a consequence. Yes. Scott Robertson, excuse yeah. me, recorder. Um, and, um, and then, of course, I had my own dramatic failure in industry, but that probably comes into the conversation later. Well, so you, was, did you go to AT&T then? Was that, I went, was that your work? Actually, I went after I finished that degree with four hours to mm. spare. Um, I finished out that, that winter, um, I think it was a January degree. So I, I, I mm -hmm. worked still in the research assistantship mm -hmm. for, for my advisor for the rest of that year and then took my first job at IBM, which was in Charlotte, North Carolina. And I wish to say very carefully, I believe Charlotte is a very different place now. Mm -hmm. If we had gone to Charlotte as it is now, we probably would have stayed and it would have been pretty wonderful, but it was not the place then that it is now. And within some number of months, the choice was pretty stark. I could stay in IBM or I could stay married. I chose love and found a way to get us out of the South. But when my spouse, now I would say my first spouse, mm. was um, very, very depressed at the isolation that she was going through right. in a culture that she felt was not her own. Yeah. And, and then it was 
no longer the bell system, but I went to a piece of the split apart bell system, yeah. and by dumb luck I chose the right piece, which was Belcor. Briefly, Belk, there were seven baby bells, as they were mm -hmm. called. Um, each one had its own geographical region, which was supposed to keep them friends and not in competition. It was only later that they discovered they wanted to eat each other, <laughs> and then promptly did. Um, Belcor was their joint um, research and development, and real heavy on the development arm. Um, and because they were considered not to be in competition, it was safe to to share information mm -hmm. with this centralized source of stuff. It was a company that had exactly seven customers who also owned it. So it was complicated. But um, And I would like to say that I went into the research part of Belcor, and I didn't. I went into uh, an interstitial organization that was called Computer Technology Transfer, where um, they wanted us to evaluate other people's technology for suitability to be passed along to development. And we, of course, wanted to make our own, and that's what we did. Mm -hmm. so, and, and those were eight glorious years. And sometime during that time, I wandered off to Seattle for a Kai conference, I think. And there was this thing happening nearby in another part of Seattle called the Participatory Design Conference, the first one of those in North America. And I went to that conference, and I got religion. I came <laughs> back with fire behind the eyes. I was insufferable. And I was going to make the world safe for workplace democracy. You know, it was easy. So it was the workplace democracy that got you. Yes. And then later, we, um, well, later, like a year later, working with Danny Wildman and Ellen White, we began to think how to adapt our understanding. And I believe to this day, Susanna Budker, for example, would say our misunderstanding. Mm -hmm of the Scandinavian methods, how to mm -hmm. adapt them to the North American, mm -hmm. well, really to the United States workplace, even though we had, we, there were unions in the telephone companies. So we did have partners, but the American labor movement gave up on much of what the Scandinavian labor movement was advocating for. Um, and so we sort of didn't have much time to convince people that we were not academics. Yeah. And, um, and, and we had fooled ourselves into thinking that some of the Scandinavian practitioners were not academics, and they generally were. And so we thought they'd already given the existence proof that this could work in industry, whereas we became their existence proof that this would work in industry. But we knew that we, didn't, we wouldn't have people's attention for very long, and so we shortened all the methods down to less than, less than 60 minutes and conducted a series of conversion experiences. I within remember, the company. Within the company, and then at a series of conferences, CHI conferences, especially Usability Professionals Association, mm -hmm. which was mm -hmm. within the bounds of conception at that time. Um, and just over and over again showed people how delighted they would be to interact more directly with users and to make users their partners. And it was the failures of, of that teaching experience were few to non-existent. It was there were glory days for us, and it was so people really responded to that. I remember when we did a, a practice exercise yeah. with Ellen White, the, yeah. the, one of our, our original trio of people. Um, I conducted the exercise, and Ellen sat back at the end and said, "Well, that changed the way I was thinking, or well, that opened my eyes. Something. I mean, it was they were revelations to people. Mm. I mean, this was we said at the time. I especially said at the time." It's as if our usability practices involve taking a user by the feet, sticking their head in the computer screen, and reading the usability meter on the back of their head. <laughs> We'd like to do something a little bit more partnership-oriented than that. And, and then we showed how to do it, and that it was fun, and that it was information-rich. And, and then you made friends. You know, I'm, I'm still friends with some of the people I worked with at US mm. West in mm. the early 90s. It, um, and, and they were not researchers, and they are not researchers now, although they were co-authors in some of the papers. It must and have been really satisfying having that sort of response and influence. It was an amazing, it was a very heady experience. Mm. And um, at least the local management in Belcor got it and thought it was a great thing. And, and so it was lovely. And then, then the baby bells discovered that once they began to want to eat each other, 
Um, and of course, I, I'm, I'm serious about the eating part mm. because they did take each other over, and so that there's now really two left out of the seven. Um, then Belcour began to look like an enormous um, sieve in which their intellectual property went at one end and came out to the other six mm. of their competitors at the other end. And, and so that was, but it was, we had a very, very good time, and mm. I think we made change. Mm. So did it, you were clearly doing something that was pioneering. It sounds pioneering in the company, but also pioneering in, in industry context generally from what you've just said. In the North American. Yeah, in the North American. Industry context. And, of course, there were partners. Yeah. And, of course, as time went on, there were more and more of them. Yeah. But, um, and we always thought, well, we're just following the Scandinavian model but with modifications because, the, in part, the industry attention span is kind of brief. Mm. Um, and culturally, we had to make mm. some changes. And I don't say that we did any of that analytically. Mm. We did it by intuition, and we sometimes got it really wrong. Um, but we got it right enough so that, um, so that people were really happy to learn how to do that. Did it feel like a scary thing to be doing that you were pioneering, or were you just so fired up with, you know, like this, we just have to do this with belief and passion that... We said workplace democracy over and over and over again. And the pushback in North America was, well, that's inappropriate. <laughs> and in fact, early on, the pushback was, you mean socialism, and which was a, back when the Soviet Union a, still a bad sort word. of existed yeah. um, on the way down or out. Yeah, that was a capital, capital V, very bad thing to, mm. say, to be associated mm. with. And we said, yeah, well, that's part of it. And... Um, I'm sure we limited our effectiveness mm. in some ways, mm. and I think only one of the three of us really had promotion in mind, but we probably delayed his promotion mm. by, by that. But, mm. but we, we kept on claiming well, that we needed diverse expertises, plural, in order to handle complicated problems, and you mm. wouldn't work this hard on a design thing unless it was a complicated problem. You mm. just do something in a half an hour, and it would be designed and you'd be done. So for hard problems, we needed diverse expertises. We needed, um, we needed shared ownership of the outcome so that organizations could then move on it. Yeah. And we needed democracy, and all three of those pointed to the same thing. So why was democracy a problem? Yeah. And a number of yeah. people were at pains to explain to us why democracy yeah. was a problem, but for a while we could get away with not listening, even though at the same time, we knew that people were picking up only the first two parts of that, mm. and they didn't care a bit mm. about the third one. Mm. So I'm interested that you just said then that only one of the three of you were interested in promotion. So you were not interested in promotion. I eventually made the mistake of trying that out many years later um, at Microsoft, and within 10 months, um, Microsoft, the company, and my manager in particular had explained to me how bad a mistake that was and had sent me down, as one would say, on this island, had told me um, they gave me a performance improvement plan. Well, when you get one of those, you learn to be an expert reader of it really fast. Yeah. And you know, there are some of those that are designed to be survivable, and then there are the ones that are not. And I had one of the ones that was not. Uh, it was in perpetuity, as far as I could tell, which is unusual. And the criteria for success were not very well spelled out. So once one receives one of those, yes. if one then continues to work, then one has agreed that one can be fired at any moment. That none of the legal protections mm -hmm. are, not that there are many mm -hmm. in North America, but none of those are left. Mm -hmm. You've signed away your right to sue if you're fired. Um, and so um, since this one was not, and, and you know, organizations know how to do this. They yeah. have lawyers. And if, if the conclusion is this person should go away, please, then, um, then the performance improvement plan sort of says that in mm. between the lines. Mine seemed to say that. So I accepted that judgment and went away. So what happened between you know, the, the heady days of the, the PD? Um, I eventually thought that it might be good to be in someplace other than New Jersey. Mm -hmm. My spouse had been, uh, spouse at the time, my first wife, mm -hmm. um, found most of her 
spiritual life in nature and U.S. West Advanced Technologies in Boulder, Colorado had mm. a job opening. Mm. Terry Roberts was the mm. manager. She is a member of more the U.S. than the ECSCW community yeah. of CHI yeah. in this case. Um, I called Terry and said, well, would I be one of the people you'd be interested in? And um, my impression is that they wanted somebody else, but that person turned them down, so they got me as their mm -hmm. consolation prize. And so we moved to Colorado. Mm. And, and it was a very different kind of job. The, um, the practicalities of the phone company were right there. And the very first project that I had was a voice automation project whose goal was of course, economies, but they were labor economies. Mm. And so I was interviewing telephone operators to help them to lose their jobs, which wasn't quite what I had in mind. Mm. Um, and that was when we did, and I'm not going to do a bunch of, gosh, how wonderful things were stories anymore, but we did an analysis of the work of that particular kind of telephone operator, mm. which, which job description no longer exists. Um, and showed that they were doing knowledge work. Mm. Many, many different mm -hmm. kinds of knowledge work. We mm -hmm. showed it qualitatively, we showed it quantitatively. I remember there was a Chi 1995 presentation in which it, I felt like an oracle explaining to the world that telephone operators really were unacknowledged knowledge workers. Um, and as I, I guess I've told this story sometime at this conference, eventually the paper that we wrote was brought to the next negotiating table between the union and management and mm -hmm. it was brought by the union and this was considered to be a very bad moment in my career as I'd helped the wrong side. Nice. But um, the way that I dealt with that contradiction, um, nonetheless it was a voice automation project and nonetheless it was going to cost jobs. And it didn't work the way that the original technical utopian kind of idea had said but it was also our job to help make that successful. Mm. And so with modification, mm. we did. I think it's relevant to, to tell this story very quickly. I went to interview or to actually to observe operators work in a bunch of places. Mm. I was not a manager, but in every operator services bureau that I visited, they, they put management observation on every operator's screen because someone was looking. And I was very clear that what, no matter what my political sympathies were, I was paid by management. They considered to be an ex yeah. me to be an extension of yeah. them. Um, and so one local union vice president took me for a tour and said, here are the directory assistance operators. That was the specialization that we were working on. Here are the call completion operators. And over there, there used to be operator workstations until people like you came, Michael. And then mm. and we worked out a working relationship around that, but everybody had been clear, as I had been clear in saying, you know, my sympathies, and I also want to say very clearly, you cannot trust me mm. because I report to somebody mm. else. It was an interesting series of conversations. That's taking very principled stands. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Those are the stands we should be taking. Mm. Um, for the benefit of the recording device, Geraldine and I have just listened to Mark Ackerman talk about how the radical right is organizing on the internet. One needs principal stands these mm, days. Yeah. One, actually, we always have needed yeah. principal stands, yeah. but it's harder to fail to notice that. Yeah. yeah. I mean, those were principled stands. On the other hand, I was doing what the company wanted, which was to help them use technology to mm. displace labor. Mm. So. I would say that my principles were at least, at least in a gray area, and a, possibly the word that one would use is botched. I'm not sure. Mm. It, I, I did lose sleep over that. Not that that's a great testimony to my pol political purity. It, it work in, I would claim work in any organization involves some kind of compromise of principle at one time or another. Um, that's where we were. We were in, mm. it, with, that was the compromising principle that we were dealing with. We, I, I kind of believe in full employment. If, as a, at that time, as an employer, employee of the telephone companies, I wanted people to have enough money to buy phone service. And I was helping to, to disemploy or unemploy some of them. Mm. Um, but that, that was in my job description to do, you know, help the company to achieve its technology mm. goals.
Interesting tension to negotiate, isn't it, or to navigate yeah. your own personal values and mm-hmm. what's important and and what you're required to do or asked to do in a work context. And how how you the way you navigated that there was just saying to the people, This is who I am and where I'm coming from, but this is who I'm reporting to and, and mm-hmm. making it a topic of conversation. Very explicitly, yes. Mm. Yes, otherwise mm. I would have been lying. Mm. Yeah. Um and the union, which was Communications work, Workers of America, understood the threat of voice automation technology, which was the underlying thing that was going to drive this project. And some of the local chapters decided to work with us rather than to refuse to talk to us yeah. because they wanted at least to know what was coming. And so that was a kind of a compromise. Mm. There were operators who were helping us to collect data. Mm. Although what they were helping us to collect were data to show how much knowledge management, knowledge working was going on, but yeah. still, um, the other part was you know, it, it eventually supported using this technology to reduce the number of operators. Mm. So this is this is mm. not a clean story. Yeah, and uh, people yeah. have been extraordinarily nice to me about the political implications of the work, and I really don't deserve it mm. because ultimately, I mean, a politically pure person would have walked away from that job, mm. and I didn't. Except it was going to happen anyway. Yeah, but so if you hadn't have done it, someone else would have, and they may not have brought the same sensitivity mm-hmm. and care. And but do I, yes, that's true. And I remember actually, I can tell the story with a name: Arnie Lund, who was a senior manager of the HCI usability practice at um, Ameritech, which mm-hmm. oh, recorder was one of the seven seven baby bells. Um, somebody I admired very much, um, told me that the story, one, at one point he had been in a sort of doomed organization and they had made him lay everybody, el- everybody else off and then lay himself off. And I said, Arnie, what had you done to cause them to put you through that much pain? And his answer was, Michael, you don't understand. They knew I would hate it. That was their gift to the employees, that the person laying them off would be really unhappy about it and would take care of them. So I tried to do things with mm, care. Yes. Um, yeah. I was never anywhere as good as Arnie at anything, yeah. but um, yeah. I tried. Yeah. And at the same yeah. time, um, I was hopelessly compromised. And yeah. there we are. I think that's yeah. the life in, a, in an organization. So do you think that that is, there are going to be situations or tensions like that working in industry in general, from your experience, or I think it happens to, to people mm. working in academia too. Yes. I mean, there's the student who's in trouble, and you know that a certain kind of extra chance might—the odds are low—but mm. might get them out of trouble. And the mm. department says, "No, they're not going to get that mm. chance," or the dean says. Mm. And and when that happens, your situation is not terribly different mm. from mine. Mm. I, it, if we work in organizations, there's organizations have their own logic and it's a little bit more reptilian, cold-blooded than the logic that most of us bring to each other or our conversations or our students or, in my case, our interns. Or, But you seem particularly reflective um, about your own position in it. I am ancient. I've had a lot of time to think about it. No, but you were talking about it from very early days as well. That's true. That's Mm. true. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's what I did. I, I, I know you want that to be a question. Yeah, no, sure no, no. Just, so yours, you have continued to remain working within industry, industry research context, despite some of these difficulties. Yes. Um, there's a bunch of reasons why, family reasons why I'm in the right place at the moment mm. in New England and... Um, And starting over as an academic at, at this let stage me, is, is complicated. I, it also has seemed like many of the choices you've made haven't just been purely your own choice as well, that they've been broader family contexts mm-hmm. as well that have influenced... I am connected what, to people, yeah. Yeah, and yeah. how that plays out in work decisions. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And do you ever see... Do you, do you always see a future in, a, in industry or do you think there may be options for moving to academia if, if that was something that you would even think about? Well, I do have a tiny, non-paid 
academic role at mm -hmm. Wellesley College. Mm -hmm. um, and for people who don't know, Wellesley is an all-woman school. I am paying back some of the unearned white male privilege I have received over the course of my life. I am not finished paying back, not by a long shot. Um, one never knows what will happen next, but um, if there were a way to do, to have a larger academic role without, I don't, I don't want to use the word as strong as betrayal, um, without letting down the people who are currently counting on me, and I'm the last social scientist in IBM Research in Cambridge. Right. Okay. Um, if, if there were a way to do that, then I would probably try to increase the academic side of my life. It is mm. true. It's, mm. um, it's a different set of skills. It's a different set of experiences. Mm. As a industry person, I certainly I mentor junior people when they come in. Um, I mentor interns, that, um, and and there's not enough of that in. I, I, some of that mentoring is, is also paying back the unearned white male privilege. Mm -hmm. Is it a role that's recognized in the company or is it something that you take on more as a personal commitment? It's a good thing to do. Um, and yes, it's a good thing to do and an internship that turns out well just makes everybody mm. happy. And um, I like to say... And I don't know if people in academia would agree, but really what we do over the course of roughly 11 weeks is help someone to do yet another master's thesis. Mm. Or the amount of work that would be equivalent to that, but probably the, the, the related work section is kind of briefer than mm. the thesis. Mm. Um, so that, that's a lot to do. And, mm. and the people who can do that, you know, are terrific. Mm. And... Um, and, and we're in touch with them for years mm. afterwards. It, it's sort of, it's amusing to, to find that we're doing that in the middle of the summer when many of our academic colleagues are actually... Disappearing. Disappearing. <laughs> or, or choosing a different pattern and rhythm of mm. their work. Mm. And so when, when we then have meetings, like at the Human-Computer Interaction Consortium, um, we're, we industry people are desperate to have full internet so that we can be in instant messaging contact with... Their students, our mm. our current interns. Mm. So it's mm. kind of funny, but you, you do a lot of mentoring, and because you, you have just mentored, uh, managed the mentoring process for young reviewers in a conference cycle yeah. that I was just papers chair of, and thank you for doing that. Um, and you've been involved in career development symposium at mm -hmm. at uh, Kai, and you're doing mentoring here. So that's obviously something. That's, and, and it sounds like what you're doing at Wellesley might also sort of fall into something similar. That sounds like something that's really important to you. Well, I'm a white American boy. Got all this unearned privilege. Let's do something constructive with mm. it so I can open doors. Mm. I can Now, what happens after I open the door? I don't say, so go through the door and we'll, and we'll see you later to someone. Mm. I mean, there's an ongoing relationship mm. and... Um, and often a relationship of great warmth and loyalty, I hope in two directions. Um, but I think in, in these days of my career, I, I, I like to say that I have roughly the same job title that I first began to work in in 1984, because I tried that manager thing at Microsoft and mm -hmm. it didn't work. Mm -hmm. I made so many terrible mistakes. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, they were right. To, to do what they did to me. I just didn't much enjoy it. But is, um, it, is it saying that that's not your skill set? Managing, I think that's true. Um, yeah, I think that's true. Um, but so I can mentor. That's the thing I can do. Um, and and I'm, I, I have friends who, we, we could all do the list, you know, friends who happen to be female, friends who happen to be LGBTQI, um, a few friends who are Native American, other friends who are, have a color that is not my color. 
I don't know what that's like, but to、mm. the extent that I have an understanding of it, I understand that I have had a blessed life. So let's spend some of that、mm-hmm. opening doors,、mm-hmm. um, opening so, the door that that is unfairly closed,、right. and then after that,、um, there's probably an ongoing mentoring relationship. But there's also a responsibility of the person for whom the door is open to walk into that yeah. door, yeah, to take advantage of it. <laughs> and then, and then that's not the end of the story.、Yeah. I guess I want to say it doesn't、yeah. mean okay, here's your one chance. Oh, you failed. Well, isn't、mm-hmm. that sad? No,、mm-hmm. it, it, these are long-term relationships.、Mm-hmm. But the opening the door is a crucial step. So, what's mentoring practically for you? How does that play out?、Um, I don't know. Would you ask that question in a different way so that I can answer、um, it better than I can right now? As a, how would you define mentor, mentorship?、Mm. Fair enough. And, and Geraldine, you and I have so much shared experience <laughs> in different mentoring settings. This is going to be fun to talk about.、Um, part of it is. The stuff、um, you just coordinated in the doctoral consortium—that would be an example、mm. where we're working with、um, the content of research projects and the strategies of really of surviving as a researcher in one kind of researcher or another, or a third kind, or a fourth kind, or a fifth kind, as we saw out of、mm. ten people,、mm. <laughs> blessedly diverse.、Um, but that's sort of the content. And then there's the other experience that you and I have also shared in the early career development symposium,、yeah. and that's more.、Um, we almost discourage people from talking about content, and we want them to talk about work challenges、yeah. and、um, how they are planning this step, the next step, and if there's a lot of trust, what they wish they had planned differently about the last step.、Mm. Um, In which, like your、um, highlighting of, of Scott Robertson's post,、um, in which failures are an important part of what we bring to that, our own failures are an important、mm. part of, we,、mm. of what we bring to those.、Um, pe- each person in there is going to have some failure. It won't be our failure, and I'm not sure you have any failures, Geraldine. I but think I, we. I hugely do. <laughs>、um, I do. And so,、um, so that's a different kind of mentoring.、Mm. So some of it is sort of career personship, and and、um, I, I well and for the really solid relationships, it's thinking together,、mm. Um, mm. which of course we do with people we aren't mentoring, who are our peers,、mm. or or we discover there are mentors, and、mm. we're thinking together, but、um, they're helping us. And so it's interesting that there are different sort of degrees of or different styles of mentoring relationships、mm-hmm. and. That, Well, and for me, mentoring very, very quickly in most cases becomes two-way.、Mm-hmm. Uh, a good example of that, there are many, actually, but a, a great example of that would be Cheyenne Guha, who interned with us in 2015, I think. He was there to do a certain kind of social network analysis. He knew tons more about that than I did. Through a series of misadventures of other people.、Um, A、uh, pro- proposal that I had sent to this strange organization called Human Computing Human Computer Interaction Consortium had been accepted, and we were going to talk about the similarities, the striking similarities between two different data-driven analytical approaches, which were machine learning and grounded theory method,、mm-hmm. which at surface looked like they should have absolutely nothing to do with each other. And actually involved many of the same ways of thinking, and、um, but I didn't know that very well. I was counting on somebody else to do the、uh, machine learning part. The somebody else was too busy, and Shyan happened to know that, and so so he was mentoring me as we wrote those slides,、mm. just as I was、mm-hmm. mentoring him、yeah. as we wrote those slides,、yeah. and as we gave the talk, and as we had. Just so much fun playing off each other as as, as we did that talk,、um, and I, I could say similar things, a little less dramatically about、um, Tanushri Mitra. I don't know if any of these no longer students, but young professionals' names belong in the blog entry. Um, but um, you know, wonderful people, wonderful、mm. thinkers.、Mm. Um, so they came to IBM to learn、mm. from me, and they taught、mm. me. I、mm. hope I taught them、mm. too. But, and、mm. then. 
you know, after all that teaching stuff or unidirectional teaching stuff is done, then we work together and we think together and, ooh, what fun. Right. Yeah. So, I don't know, that all sounds yeah. very idealistic and, no, and but lovely. It's, but it, it clearly has played out very practically. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. And I don't say yeah. every internship has gone that yeah. way, but yeah. a bunch of them have. And mm-hmm. there, there's a moment at the end of an internship when, when the internship is officially over, mm. and then, then I'm careful to say, and now we're colleagues. And that's a good thing. Yeah. And, yeah. and it's true, I'll be advising on... Mm career stuff mm. for a while, but they'll also be advising me on mm. whatever they know more about, too. So. I, I love that transition with my own PhD students. Yes, exactly. You know, like that happens over the course of the PhD, and by mm-hmm. the time they finish, they're just good friends good yes. and really valued colleagues. You know, and there's a piece of paper that, that validates what you already know, yeah. which is their, their yeah. colleagues. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah. A couple of good experiences this year. Yeah. So what, what are your current, um, what's concerning you currently? Aside from Mark Ackerman's talk. <laughs> your, your current passions or you know, ah, what, what's, okay. what's keeping you excited about work? or um, The work, there are two big things IBM wants me to do these days. One of them is a third or fourth year of work on a sort of management science concept and human resources concept called employee engagement, um, which which certainly has controversies, but the, the general understanding of it is there are ways to measure the likelihood that employees will go the extra mile. Mm-hmm. And, and um, some people who like a lot of syllables will say voluntary investment of discretionary effort. Mm which arguably makes organizations go. Mm. And I think it makes academic mm. organizations go as well as All business ones. Yeah, yes. that's, yeah, that's what we hope to find in ourselves. Yeah. Yeah. And that's what we hope to find in yeah. our colleagues. Yeah. And, um, and so um, there are survey-based ways to measure that. Mm. So you get to do that about once a year, mm. which is, it leads to certain ironies. Like in our case, the survey happens in November. There, reasonably well analyzed later in December, and by that I mean in terms of the, not what's Michael's engagement, but what's the engagement of people in this particular Mm. way of of breaking down and analyzing um, the IBM has more than 300,000 employees. So so knowing what it is for the company is kind of interesting, but knowing how the sellers are doing in Indonesia might be really important. Mm. Okay, Um, so it takes a while to do all those statistics, and we don't do that. The Human Resources Department does that very, very, very well. Um, so around January, then you find out it's got a problem someplace, so you do an intervention, and then should you really wait until November to find out if your intervention was effective? Doesn't seem like a good idea. Uh. And so um, so we be, IBM has, this is suddenly a very IBM-centric part of, of the interview, has a thriving social media ecosystem inside of itself, partially based on work that our group did, mm. especially Werner Geyer's um, initial, initial project in what turned out to be the first application of enterprise social media and just opened everybody's eyes. Um, and then David Millen did a series of really brilliant experiments on um, social bookmarking in the mm-hmm. enterprise, social networking in the enterprise, social file sharing in the enterprise. And, um, and, and we probably don't need to do the details. Anyway, there's a lot of text. And much of that text is internally public, by which I mean if you write it, you know that 350,000 yeah. other people could, could read, read it, it. Yeah. all of whom are your colleagues inside of IBM. It's still confidential, or proprietary at mm. least. Mm. Um, could be confidential. Um, but you know that it, it, it's not a secret from management mm. that you wrote it. So, um, in brief, then, the way that the process works is all of the public part of those texts are collected. Identities are stripped off and re- replaced with a definitely one-way cipher. So there's no way of reversing it to find out who's who. And then 
stripped off and done a second time, just to be sure, and then we get the text to analyze with some of the demographics left intact, mm. as long as the group isn't so small that mm. we could that figure out there's yeah. only two people. Yeah. And, yeah. Right. Um, and so then we spent a lot of time uh, figuring out if there was signal in all of those words um, that would help us to know what was happening mm. with engagement. And our first answer was, yeah, we got it, and it lasts for about a month, and then it changes. And that was interesting. And then our predictions for the next year, and the executives in human resources actually asked for an envelope with the predictions in there just before they ran the survey, absolutely fell flat. And it was, we were unsuccessful. And we had a bunch of whiny reasons why that might have mm -hmm. been, but it didn't matter much because it hadn't worked. Mm. And that was it, it, you know, it was a very Deweyan kind of way of thinking. It is in the United States. So if it didn't work, we need to fix it. And um, for other reasons, our group had hired um, Matt Davis, who is spectacularly good at machine learning and predictive algorithms, and he fixed it. He absolutely fixed it. And so, and then... Um, Somebody else, actually in the human resources department, um, I'm, I'm just checking in my mind, yes, all of this is public. Um, Abbas Gadrigaldistani um, found a way of, of generating monthly estimates. Uh, and, so, um, and so now we can understand what happens. And, and, and the human resources department has said, in effect, well, first you could describe it, and then you could predict it, and now we want you to fix it. And so... So suddenly we're no longer in the math stats business. We are making a place for people to share their ideas about what would increase engagement. And, and it can be as simple as smile at your colleague in the yes. elevator. Yep. And it can be as complicated as, is this the right moment in your career to consider a month-long um, assignment in the corporate citizenship court? Uh, yeah. And so, so that's interesting to think yeah. about making where this goes mm -hmm. is to make the experience of work a better experience that's or individuals good. who are doing the work. And that's the part that makes me happy, of course. Yeah. It also helps the organization yeah. to run, pay its yeah. bills, keep the lights on. It's not bad being paid to do work, you know, all that stuff that anybody in any organization that pays would like. But what pleases me, of course, is um, most of the time when people are more engaged, they're happier to be mm. doing the work. Yeah. And, and it feels... Mostly it doesn't feel like self-exploitation. Mm. It feels like, because um, the engagement usually is with colleagues as well as with clients, as yeah. well as with the content of the work. Yeah. And so it's fulfilling. Yeah. So, you know, it, so you're contributing to creating a fulfilling workplace. It, it, we almost could call it the fulfillment scale, except yeah. actually somebody else made that survey and it's a different survey yeah. and it measures something different. So that's one part. The other so that's part, an interesting um, mix of skills that you bring mm. to that work. So we're working on so, this, on making... The experience of work a better experience right. is one way to say it. I think there's some paper someday that'll be called Emotions at Work, yeah. which will cover this and a bunch yeah. of other topics, but I don't know how to write mm -hmm. that paper yet. Mm -hmm. And the other half of my job, or the other one, we're not quite sure what the percentage is, is to help IBM think about how to be... IBM loves leaders. It's part mm -hmm. of the culture. Leading mm -hmm. is part of the culture. Mm -hmm. um, we want to have a leadership position in AI and ethics now that they're firmly committed, as so many companies are, to doing something in AI. And, um, and, and this is work, uh, a collaboration with Vera Lau, whom you've met, yeah. um, and who is a, a wonderful person to work with. I, record that, please. Um, and, um, and so we are the only two people in that effort who believe in empirical methods. But the rest of it is computer scientists, talking about principles. And um, there's some very interesting work by Chiang and Su, and I'm, I'm sorry that I don't remember Chiang's first name, um, um, Norman Su, in which they talk about how roboticists they have interviewed try to configure the user, um, describe what the ideal user will be someday, even though most of the current users aren't ideal. Mm. And we think maybe people should be working on what mm. the future users are like now. And so we're actually returning to some of those participatory themes and using design fictions mm. as a way to do some of those investigations. And then because of some other almost formative experiences for me, 
using um, an analytic lens of value-sensitive design right. with modifications right. in order to understand what we're hearing. And it's very, very early days on that. Um, so it sounds like all interesting work. So it's, just from it, a, it's IBM. A more, it's really hard to get bored. A, a, from a more um, holistic side, mm -hmm. are you able to, and a practice of it, is it, Normal, relatively normal working hours. You know, is there a lot oh, of goodness. pressure? Oh, No, of course yeah. not. Yeah. Oh, I mean, it's, how do you it's navigate that? Like everybody else, like mm -hmm. you do, our, our our work could our work could expand to cover every waking moment that mm -hmm. we have, and then cause mm -hmm. us to have more waking yes. moments. Um, we all have to work out our work family balance. So, what are your right? strategies? What What do you have in place? Um, You know, I don't even know how to answer that question, which is probably bad news. Um, somewhere in, in, in this history, and we don't, I think, need to do the details of this, um, my first wife left me. I eventually was introduced by a colleague to the person who is, I, want, I so, seem so stupid to say my second wife. I, mm. I, I'm her husband. It, mm. Partner. Mm. Um, Beloved partner, and so we support each other as we both overwork. That's not much of an answer to your question, yeah. but that's it. So you both you both uh, work a lot. We both work a lot. Part of her work is, I'm, I guess I'm going to be a little vague. Mm. It involves um, equity issues, which mm. in I don't know if that translates for everyone who's likely to be um, reading the blog. So early on, we set affirmative action, mm -hmm. and then the um, Polemicists of the right said, on, on the of the right wing said that means quotas, which it kind of never did. But so people dodged and they said diversity and equity is supposed to be well after diversity. Then how about we all have a stake and how about we're doing more than making sure that the hues around the office look mm, different. Right. And so so there's a similar passion for. Yeah. A, a, this is such a grand phrase, and, and I don't. I would never really apply it to myself. I would apply it to my partner. There's a passion for justice in this. Mm, I would apply that and, to you well, strongly as I, well. I thank you very much for doing that. I think it's 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 too grand a phrase for me to mm. use on myself. Yeah. Um, we're both I, trying to I, I make positive change in the world. Yeah. We're both trying to make up for the good stuff we've gotten, which. We, and, you know, we've both worked hard for yeah. the good stuff that we've gotten, yeah. and like any white person in North America, we ought to know that we didn't do it by ourselves, that there was a whole lot of other white people cheering for us, and a whole lot of societal things that were designed to help us to mm. do that, and we're both paying back. So does that mean you, you work hard or work long, but it's not an issue because it's something you want to do because of this um, happy to pay it back? That's part of it. And then the other part is the content is extremely interesting. Yeah. And um, yeah. I, I will not say never a dull moment. Yeah. And I won't say, yeah. you know, like any organization, there's mm. the tasks I'd rather not do that yeah. I have to do anyway. I'm sure that's true of your life. Oh, and yes. he said, speaking directly <laughs> to the recorder, I'm sure it's true of the, the lives of the people who are reading yeah. the blog post. Yeah. Um, it's just trying to get I, enough I, of a balance of the things that yeah, you do care I, about. I makes, like the work I'm doing. Yeah, great. I love the people I'm working mm. with. And, um, and so like far, subject, you know, the change yeah. without notice. Yeah. But so far, it's work I can hold my head up about. It's work I think actually is making good kinds of changes. Mm. Um, or has the potential to yeah. make good kinds of changes. Yeah. See how well we do it. See if we're successful in making those changes. Um, that's a good life. Great. Yeah. So, and you, you said at the beginning, you know, you've got some chronic health issues. Mm. So in, in working hard and, and managing your own sort of health issues, do you have any particular personal practices that maintain your you know, emotional, physical, spiritual health and well-being or whatever oh, that, that are important in, um, in helping to keep that momentum of work that you're going? The simple answer and... It's so saccharine, Pollyanna sweet. I love people. I think that's a very healthy thing to do. Mm. I, I don't mm. love everybody. Mm. <laughs> I, I love my spouse. I love my daughter. I love the people I work with. Those mm. are three very, very, very different kinds of love. Mm. Um, there's no weird white male things here. Um, 
I believe I li- I, each of those three kinds of love I do appropriately, um, not perfectly. Mm. Oh my goodness, mm. not perfectly. Um, that's there's more to it than that, but mm. that's the core spiritual practice right there. So the, the take people. care of people, mm. Um, mm. and and the take care of people part. Now we're saying interns too. I don't mm. claim to love yeah. my interns. No, but um, that that care, that same mm-hmm. care and concern has come through in many mm-hmm. of the. Yeah. Situations that you've talked about as a common thread. Yeah, yeah, I think it is. It is to be in in relationships in which we are exchanging affection and support. Great. That seems like a lovely note to end on. Well, you're very sweet to do say you, so. Thank you. Do you have any any particular final things that you'd want to just share? I'm sure there's something, but I don't know what it is. Good. So thank you. thank you, Michael, for your time. Thank you, Geraldine, thank for your time. And again, for the honor of this interview. My pleasure. It's really a pleasure. Thank you. You too. You can find the summary notes and related links for this podcast on www.changingacademiclife.com. You can also subscribe to Changing Academic Life on iTunes and now also on Stitcher. And you can follow Change Acad Life on Twitter. And if something connected with you, please consider sharing this podcast with your colleagues so that we can widen the conversation about how we can do academia differently. Mm -hmm.